Welcome into the Follow On podcast here on followoncricket.com. Chinmay Vaidya, Anish Tal, Ashay Chavan here with me. Guys, we're talking about the Under-19 World Cup. We're not talking about the tournament itself. We're talking about three incidents in particular that have basically sparked a debate about sportsmanship and spirit of the game in cricket. Cricket Australia considering disciplinary action for an Instagram post that was posted by Jake Fraser McGurk after Australia had made it to, I believe it was the semifinal, or it was either the quarterfinal or the semifinal round. And he basically said, on to the next match. And players responded to that post with sort of broken English and language that was basically mocking non-native English speakers and the way they spoke English. And they happened to be playing India next. So it was taken in that way. Personally, I thought it was incredibly unnecessary, which makes the situation that much worse. Uh, There was no need for that sort of behavior to even happen. No need to even engage in those shenanigans. Obviously, it was going to draw attention because they were playing India next and this is a huge event that's happening. So obviously, it was going to be, you know, found out. Uh, Fraser McGurk had to be sent back because he was scratched by a monkey on a monkey reserve trip that the team had taken on a day off. So he had to be sent back early. Call that karma, if you will. Guys, what do you think of this particular incident, where it falls in line with with sportsmanship, spirit of the game, that, that whole deal? It's certainly childish behavior on the part of all of the Australians here. I mean, look, this is like 17-year-old, 18-year-old high school kids. And they're just, they're a tight-knit group. They're having fun. It's certainly not the smartest or the most, uh, I guess, most politically correct post. But, I mean, it's not a big deal. Like, give them a slap on the back. Talk to them behind closed doors. This really doesn't need to be blown up into anything big. And you know what? India destroyed them in the next match anyway. So that's probably enough punishment for them, too. Um, I I think they should. I know there's a lot of, like, sledging on the field. And in the past, there's been, like, racism in sledging international scene as well maybe they're not old enough to remember that but that's something that's kind of like not looked upon in the gentleman's game and i think that being these rising budding stars should be i think they should be like taught that and whether or not the punishment is too harsh and who's to say but i think they're hopefully they'll learn from these shenanigans as you said so there's definitely that historical context that there have been sort of on the pitch incidents between australia and india with racial undertones, which definitely, I think, factored into why this was, you know, blown up into something big. I do agree with you, Anish. At the end of the day, these are teenage kids doing teenage things. And, you know, we've all been there. We've all done that. We've all made regrettable decisions on social media. So it's not crazy. And it's not something that, you know, that's completely out of the norm. My take on it is, though, like once you've crossed out of like the sports arena onto like a personal attack on somebody that's when I think you've kind of crossed the line and that's where I feel like Cricket Australia are taking this so I agree you know sit them behind closed doors give them a little lecture and and that's the end of it the second one uh, and this is probably the most high profile one of the three we had a monkut incident in the game between Afghanistan and Pakistan And, you know, this is something that has happened multiple times in cricket. 
uh, over the years, and every single time it gets blown up into a discussion of spirit of the game versus the rules of the game. By the letter of the law, the batsman is out if he's outside of the crease. Now, is it a sort of sporting way to, to get a player out? Here's what Afghanistan's captain had to say after the match when he was asked about the incident. So Pakistan was in a controlling position in the match. They were going to cruise on to win. They ended up winning anyway. Afghanistan used the Munka tactic. It worked. And that's where the whole controversy started. Pakistan ended up winning the game, so it wasn't too big. But here's basically what Afghanistan's captain had to say. We as a team thought we should do something different. And we wanted to win. And if we were in a winning position, we probably wouldn't have done it. And then he admitted that it wasn't in the, you know, quote unquote, spirit of the game. Your thoughts on the action and whether it fits in the game or not. So here's the thing, right? I think you can't look back at it and say whether or not I was correct based on the result of the game. To look at it in the vacuum and it's not excuse or like, first of all, I think monkeying. So you give the batsman a warning, one or two warnings, and then you do it like, yeah, no big deal. If you just do it right off the bat, I think that's not in the spirit of the game. But back to my original point, I think if you look at it from the lens of what the result was, then you're doing it wrong in the first place. Because if you are if, if you were to view it as quote-unquote cheating or against the spirit of the game, you can't re-justify it and go back like, oh, we lost anyway, so it doesn't matter. That's my, that's my opinion. Well, I don't think they're re-justifying it. I just think he's saying that if they were in a winning position, they wouldn't have done it. And that's where I have a problem with it. Right. So he basically said, you know, let's do something different. And we wanted to win. And that's the justification every single time it's been done. Ravi Ashwin, the most notable player to have engaged in this. uh, In the IPL, we saw it last year. He got Joss Butler. When Joss Butler was absolutely crushing Kings 11 Punjab, it looked like Rajasthan Royals were going to run away with victory and Kings 11 Punjab ended up winning the game and Joss Butler getting out with this, you know, the Munka tactic was probably a big reason why. I think, you know, it's not in the normal run of play. If it was not frowned upon by players, players would do it way more often than they do. It's seen as like a last resort tactic among players and it's like, a, you know, we want to win so bad, so let's do this. At that point, I think it's just a Bush League tactic that is not in the spirit of the game. And it's totally unsportsmanlike. I think it should be taken out of the game completely. Because if you're not going to do it in sporadic instances across a match, if you're only going to do it situationally, then we know that it's wrong, right? If it's, if it's, a, if people are arguing that it's a letter of the law, that it's not even a spirit of the game argument, then why isn't it done so much more often than it is? That would be my response, would be, why don't we see it way more often? And the reason we don't is because the players themselves don't view it as something that's sporting. And so I think I think it should be taken out of the game. I'm with, I'm with you there, Chinmay. I think when, it, at the end of the day, it's up to the captain to uphold the spirit of the game on the field. And, well, if this idea is coming from the captain, then I guess that... Uh, that doesn't work out, but when you're when you're talking about this and hearing them say, "Oh, because we were losing, we did this," reminds me a lot of the Australian cheating incident that got a whole lot of publicity in the past year. 
you know, using some sandpaper in desperate times trying to get a wicket. So it really does bring it bring into question why this is even still an open loophole in the rules. And I get the rules. Look, I understand the rules. And if players are going to say, hey, it's within the rules, we're going to engage in it because it's a way to get somebody out. And batsmen have to be careful, you know. You have to stay within the crease, even at the non-striker's end. And again, it didn't look like Pakistan's batsman was trying to get an unfair advantage. You know, he wasn't already sprinting down the pitch while the bowler was coming in. So it's not exactly like he was trying to gain that unfair advantage. But if it was not frowned upon by players, we would see it way more often than we do. I think that's where I have a problem with it is if it's not seen more often than we see it, then obviously the players have a problem engaging in it unless it's a last resort thing. And, you know, where do you balance sportsmanship and winning? I don't know. Some teams, you know, that's up to individuals. But I think if players have this much of a problem with it, then it should be just taken out of the game because there's there's no reason to even have it in if it's going to be used so sparingly and players have a problem with it, but they only do it because they want to win. The last incident happened at the end of the World Cup final between Bangladesh and India. A little bit of a rivalry there that kind of plays into this. Bangladesh wins in a thrilling fashion and the entire Bangladesh team storms onto the pitch, basically celebrating they won the World Cup. The uh, actions were deemed unedifying and they brought the, the players brought the game into disrepute. Five players were sanctioned, three Bangladesh players, two India players. They're all given uh, a bevy of suspension points. The points vary based on the actions. In the videos that I've seen, it didn't look like there was much of a physical confrontation. Obviously, the Bangladesh players were, you know, all up in, in the Indian players' faces talking about how they won. So that's a good way to get a reaction out of somebody. And I'm sure words were said. This, to me, of the three, is the most non-controversial. The kids had just won a World Cup. This is probably, this could be the biggest sporting accomplishments of their lives. Possibly. They may may not play international cricket for, for either country. This is probably the biggest thing they have achieved up until this point, for sure. Especially Bangladesh's cricketers, I think it's fair to say. For them to not be able to celebrate in however way they want to, I think is is absolutely ridiculous. It's like we see in baseball. You know, players bat flip after hitting a walk-off home run. Well, if you didn't want them to bat flip, you probably shouldn't have given up the home run in the first place. So I think this one of the three is the most non-story. It's completely ridiculous. Let the players celebrate. You have a problem with it? Don't let them win. I disagree with the American points as well. Um, that being said, I think it's more of a clickbait media controversy. They want to write about stuff. And you know what? Like Storming the field after winning a World Cup, that is certainly the biggest, Bangladesh's biggest sporting accomplishment because you know how they've been deemed as a like growing, test-playing international nation in the cricket sphere. But they haven't really, they actually haven't won anything. So this is certainly the biggest accomplishment for Bangladesh. And think of it as being a World Cup. They haven't even made a semifinal before and the closest they came was in the Asia Cup but they kind of choked it away in the end to India and so you could say it's almost a rivalry the players know the weight 
history on their shoulders. And them storming the field, like, again, they're also, like, 17, 18-year-old high schoolers. And to be on that big stage, yeah, sure, you'll say win with grace, lose with grace. But, like, they, they also live and they learn. Next time they win something, they won't. They'll be more graceful in their victories. You don't see this as much in, like, the in the main, I guess, main leagues because all these athletes, the you know, the mantra is act like you've been there before. But as you can clearly see, these kids haven't been there before winning a under-19 World Cup, especially coming out of Bangladesh. So, yeah, let the kids celebrate. You know, it's... So whatever, I'm with O'Shea, this is some clickbait, let the boys play, if they're happy, they won, as long as they're not like swinging bottles at other people, or saying racist things, I don't care. Yeah, so I guess we don't really know exactly what words were exchanged, we don't really know kind of the the demeanor that came down, but it was very clear, you know, when, it's not, it wasn't just storming the field, I'll, I'll give, you know... I'll give the administration some credit on this, that it wasn't just Bangladesh players storming the field and that was it. They did get up in, in the face of Indian players and they did kind of engage in in some back and forth and there was definitely a confrontational aspect to it. So I do get where the discipline is coming from. I just think it's it's a little over the top. And to draw a parallel, you know, when England won the World Cup against New Zealand on the last ball of that Super over... Those guys were running out around the field, you know, acting like that was the biggest thing they had ever accomplished in their lives because that at, to that point it was. So I think, you know, this is play on. This is just competition. Heat of the moment things happen, but it wasn't it wasn't ill intentioned. And I think this is probably of the three, the, the least controversial one where we can say this is pretty much a non story. Nothing more to add. I think you summed it up well. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into India and New Zealand, the three T20s that were remaining, and then the ODI series. We'll also preview the test series that those two teams will be engaging in, and then England and South Africa wrapping up their limited over series. You're listening to the Follow On podcast here on followoncricket.com. Welcome back into the Follow On podcast here on followoncricket.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the Follow On. Check us out on Facebook at the Follow On. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're talking India, New Zealand. When we last left off, two T20s were, were wrapped up. India was up 2-0. There were three T20s left. Anish successfully predicted the 5-0 whitewash. I had it at 4-1. Ashay, I believe, also had it at 4-1. And New Zealand just could not get it done in super overs. That is just something that I think they, I think they're broken by super overs, really. <laughs> back to back matches, the super over cost New Zealand. And then in the 50 20, unable to chase down a relatively, you know, relatively easy target. And I think New Zealand's batting really struggled at the end of those matches, kind of closing it, you know, closing the match. They really struggled against India's bowling. India got it done, though. 5-0, a whitewash uh, is, is a nice thing to have against a team that has been dominant at home, but, you know, Kohli found a way to get it done for his guys. This, I think the scoreline definitely paints a picture that wasn't really a true reflection of the series. Obviously happy to have my prediction right. But, yeah, it's always a great confidence booster to sweep a, sweep a series at one of these big names. At, on the soil of one of these big nations, but 
as we'll soon discuss, uh, New Zealand came back with a vengeance in the next series. Well, Anish, you hinted at it. We'll talk about it right now. The three ODIs, I think everybody thought that India was just going to run through New Zealand and kind of destroy them in this tour, but Ross Taylor had other plans. New Zealand storms back. They whitewash India 3-0 in the ODI series. Now it sets up a great test clash. We'll talk about the tests in a little bit, but the ODI series, interestingly enough, the top two run scorers in the ODI series were both Indian batsmen, KL Rahul and Treya Sire. But then the next three guys, Ross Taylor, Henry Nichols, Martin Guptill, all for New Zealand, those guys were firing on all cylinders for the Kiwis. A really dominant performance by New Zealand, especially in the first and second ODIs. I think they really showed what they were capable of. And Ross Taylor, the guy just keeps keeps scoring runs. And he's kind of found a revival after a little bit of a dull period over the last, you know, two, three years, he's kind of revived his career as sort of this middle uh, middle order anchor for New Zealand. It's really nice to see. And I think Guptill and Nichols is the right pairing for them at the top. I think Monroe is a T20 batsman. If that, I don't think he's an uh, ODI guy. So I like Nichols at the top. I think New Zealand, you know, once they get Kane Williamson back in and those three all-rounders, Nisham, DeGrandome, and Santner, if they keep playing well, uh, I think New Zealand has got to be feeling good about their ODI team especially after the 5-0 T20 series loss. This was a good one for New Zealand. This was a huge series for New Zealand to bounce back. Big big from a morale standpoint, big from a confidence standpoint. But really, it spoke to the depth of their team. I mean, they had their top pace lineup all out injured, and they still they still swept India 3-0. That is absol- that's absolutely huge. Another thing is establishing some stability in their batting order and without Kane Williamson for the first two matches and without a big Kane Williamson contribution in the third match. And look at all the runs that New Zealand was able to put up without their captain. Now, Ross Taylor certainly did step up in a big way, but again, names that you said, uh, Nichols, Guptill, even Tom Latham making some uh, big contributions. This is is really big for the New Zealand cricket team uh, moving forward. This was... Almost like watching Team Team India at its finest. Uh, it was really interesting what we saw from India in the series. You know, up till now we've been so reliant on Rohit Sharma, Shikhar Dhawan, and Virat Kohli at the top, and the top two uh, unfortunately out injured. And you know, we didn't get the quote unquote normal Virat Kohli contribution, which is superhuman numbers. And it really did fall on the number four and number five to help revive India. And you know, Ayer and Rahul really put in fantastic efforts throughout the series, but it really shows importance of the openers and your top order in the one-day international format, given that it's 50 overs long. And when you lose those early wickets, it really just changes the dynamics of how you can build and accelerate an inning. So full, full credit to New Zealand for how they played. Um, up, up some applause for the India middle, middle order, which is something I feel like we haven't said in a long, long time. Um, but also a pretty disappointing effort from our bowlers uh, all the way around. Seriously, I, I think it's it's good that, so in a way, the, of course, Rohit not being there, the openings, the top order kind of failed, didn't have, like we said, those Rat Kohli numbers we're used to. But for once, the middle order stepped up and held its own when the openers failed, and this was seen across three ODIs. So that's, a, in a way, a good thing. Of course, there's no big major 50-hour tournament coming up. But as you had said earlier, Chinmay, what would have happened if, you know, India had 
done with Shreyas Iyer in the World Cup and maybe not try to force the punt in, etc. So that's one thing to think about in my mind that kind of came away from this series with. Yeah, I mean, that's a legitimate question. You know, what if India had done this uh, in the middle order uh, experimentation phase before the World Cup? That, that's a legitimate question. I think it's definitely interesting to think about if India had had Shreyas Iyer instead of Rishabh Pant, what could have happened. But I think the, the positives in this series for New Zealand are obvious. They got contributions from their openers. Ross Taylor was fantastic, and they showed that they had great bowling depth. Kyle Jamieson was one of the, the standout guys for me, and uh, Bennett was another one for New Zealand who really stood out. For India, though, Anish, you mentioned it a little bit. I think the one positive that they can take away from this series was that four and five for them with Ayer and Rahul in the one-day format looks set. So I think going into this series and going into – uh, the tournaments after the World Cup, I think India was unsure what they had at four and five. And now within four months, you've basically solved that problem by having Ayer and Rahul in there. And they've consistently put together great performances. So from that standpoint, I think India can walk away from this limited over series feeling pretty good. Now on the flip side, obviously Virat Kohli was average. And, and maybe even below average. He was way below his standards. We can safely say that. He had one half century, 75 total runs in the three ODI set. So definitely uh, underperformance from his, uh, you know, standards. So I think that's one thing to worry about is with Virat Kohli not firing and the openers not being the usual openers, I guess. India doesn't have that opening batting depth that I think they would like to have, or at least Prithvi Shah and Mayank Agarwal, probably not the guys to go with at this point. But the bowlers, man, the bowlers were not good at all in this series. And Jasprit Bumrah didn't take a single wicket. And I think we're starting to see the effects of not having Bhuvneshwar Kumar in there, not having a second spinner in there to kind of take pressure off some of these guys, and not having a Pandya in there that you can throw in for variations. I think you're starting to see India's lack of pace bowling depth uh, show, especially if Bumrah can't take wickets, because if he can't do that, then it falls on the other guys, and the other guys were just getting hammered all over the park. Here's the thing. I don't think it's necessarily about the lack of pace bowling options. I think it's the overplay, because India, along with England, probably play the most heavy international schedules of any team. And yeah, they do rotate in and out sometimes based on, you know, if they're playing against Bangladesh or whatever. But I think they still have a lot of matches on their plate, and that's what happens with overuse. And there's going to be times when just Braid Boomerang doesn't... This was a rare time. I don't think it's always going to be the case. I agree. I think this was the exception, not the rule. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And, like, Kohli being average, like, okay, you're used to this since 2014 onwards. His, his ODI... Average has been like 90 for four years, and the next like three years after that, it's been like 75. So, yeah, we're used to superhuman numbers, but you all, I think the positive takeaway is that you, I think, pretty much a good people got a chance to step up, and they did. You can't yeah. just rely on a one man chasing crew. I, I agree with that. Uh, and obviously, you know, Bhuvneshwar Kumar is injured, so there's, you know, he, he's not available to play. But I think, you know, there was some irrational confidence behind sort of the Shardul Thakurs, Deepak Jahars, the Navdeep Sainis going up against the likes of West Indies. This is New Zealand in a road situation. This is different. 
and they proved that maybe they weren't quite ready for it. Obviously, it's not a major thing with no big 50 over tournament coming up, but India will have to start to start to look at their pace bowling depth, I think, and make evaluations on these guys because it's about development. So I think they definitely do need to look at where they have um, sort of a weakness, which is pace bowling depth. One of the things I was actually more concerned about was still thinking about the six, still thinking about the six and seven spots. I think we saw something that India is still lacking at this point in what Colin de Granholm was able to achieve in the last match of coming in and delivering a lightning innings to swing the match in New Zealand's favor. And I don't know if any of the sixes and sevens we've seen recently since Hardik Pandya has got injured have even the capability of delivering an innings like that. And you know, when you when you don't have a full one through five batting lineup, you're going to get into these situations more and more where the burden falls on the lower order. And like, yeah, Ravinder Jadeja is a is a great batsman. He can definitely put in innings together uh, and stick around. But he's not the guy that's going to come in and get you like a 40 off 15 type of innings. He doesn't have that muscle and that type of power. So that was another uh, another thing that I'm looking forward to seeing how India approaches it in the series moving forwards. Yeah, I think Jadeja's a handy bat to have, and obviously his fielding and his bowling ability makes him a guy that you want to have in the side. But I do think you you are correct there that without Bandia, they do lack sort of that that finisher role, that explosiveness at the end of an innings, the guy that can just come in and take the game away. And I think that'll, you know, obviously with Bandia coming back, I think that'll change. But you're right, they don't have that guy, a backup for that either. It's something to definitely think about. I honestly feel like Jadeja has shown enough of the bat, at least in the past year, to be considered as the number six in this lineup. Yeah, I think it's possible. I think the issue with that, from a roster construction standpoint, is it leaves you one true batsman short, technically. If you were to go with an all-rounder and then four bowlers, it would technically leave you one true batsman short of a traditional lineup. But I do get what you're saying, that Jadeja from a production standpoint, has been the most productive number six player, even though he would, in a normal situation, probably come in at number seven. What is Bondia's timetable for his return? I feel like he's... I think they're going to I think they're gonna keep it, keep it very slow. I think they're going to see what he looks like in IPL. His IPL situation is very much in flux. I do think he'll play, but I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be taken very cautiously. I don't see him being rushed into anything because, as you said, there's no major 50-over tournaments, and the T20 World Cup is in October. So I think they'd rather have him 100% ready to go before trying to rush him in playing some limited-over series. I just don't think it's worth it at this point to rush him. We'll look ahead to the Test Series now. Two Test matches between India and New Zealand. World Test Championship points at stake. India miles ahead in the table. Australia, I believe, is second. New Zealand up there as well. So definitely a huge series for the hosts to try and get back. I do think India's pace attack is going to struggle against New Zealand's batsmen. New Zealand's batsmen have put up some big scores recently at home in test matches. So I do think, you know, a less than stellar India attack is, is going to face some problems. And India's batsmen, will see, their form is kind of down after the uh, ODI series. And we'll see how they handle New Zealand's up-and-coming pace attack that, that has some depth to it. So I think it's going to be a good series. I think we go 1-1. I think it's going to be a split. 
And I think New Zealand will carry some of that momentum from the ODI series into this test series and, and get one win. But I do think India does come out on top with at least, or I do think India does come back with at least one win. So a split for me, one, one in the, in the test series. I'm going to go, I'm going to go one zero India. I cannot see this India team losing a test match. I think they'll certainly be closer than you would expect. Uh, if you were talking about the series before the tour even started, but these, this India test team is just an absolute juggernaut. I mean, that middle order is just so solid in their technique. The Indian test bowlers are so good at being persistent, sticking to a plan, and getting wickets at regular intervals that, you know, this is just another quality over the T20 and ODI format. Um, and my reason for not going 2-0 is New Zealand weather, you can never predict. I'm sure there's going to be a match where like a day or two gets rained out, and that'll be the reason that New Zealand don't get swept. I'll say 1-0 also, and I think it's because, one, not only will India, I think they'll win one of the matches because of, like Anish said, the greater depth, but I think New Zealand will be able to fight back and draw in one of the two matches because they also are not too shabby of a test team. I just don't think they have as much depth as India. They are in their home grounds, um, so you never know. But I don't I don't think the New Zealand will be able to outright win this series. All right, so I've got it 1-1. Both of you guys have it 1-0 in favor of India. We'll transition now to another series that was going on, England and South Africa. England had dominated in the test series, and now it was a limited over series for them. Three ODIs, three T20s. The ODI series was a split. It was 1-1, and then one match was abandoned due to weather. The T20s were fantastic. England won the series 2-1, but all three of those matches came down to the wire. I want to talk about something that Parth mentioned in the last podcast. Basically said that some of these South Africa batsmen, Decock, Markram, Duplessis, Rossi, Bavuma, it's time that these guys, you know, we should see them scoring big runs from time to time and scoring centuries from time to time. And it's just been too long. And, you know, lo and behold, Quinton de Kock in the first ODI puts together a century and South Africa are on their way. So I think some of these batsmen are coming around. I like the talent that they have in the T20 format. Duplessis and Rabada didn't play in this series because of rest. But I think if you put those two guys back in, in the T20 team that has Dukak, Bavuma, Rossi played well, Felukwayo and Ngidi are solid, and you add a guy like David Miller who's been in good touch, and all of a sudden that's, you know, seven or eight guys, and you really only need to fill pieces around them at that point to have a legitimate team. So as much as we've talked about South Africa struggling and problems with the administration, the talent on the pitch is there. There's a legitimate team there that I think, if they get it right, can challenge for the T20 World Cup, especially with Dukak at the top and Bavuma playing the way that he is, Rossi being able to put up runs quickly. I think they have a fighting chance, and that's really what I took away from this series for South Africa. This was a huge, huge series for South Africa. Very, very entertaining, as Trinay mentioned, both the ODI and the T20 series. These matches were a lot more competitive than I think most people expected them to be, especially with England, the white ball juggernaut coming into South Africa. And yeah, you know, a lot of these players that really have had a lot of potential and haven't really broke out, I think had really, really good series, like Chunmay said. And so 
moving forwards, you know, Quentin DeCock now, he's he's the leader here uh, in these formats, and especially with the news of Pop Duplessis uh, stepping down. We saw a new energy with Quentin DeCock's leadership, and sometimes when you have a wicketkeeper as a captain, you just see things, you see things differently, you perceive things differently, and there's just a different perspective out there on the field, and I really like what I saw overall uh, in this, from the spirit of South Africa. I think it's a huge stepping stone for them, that confidence boost, because they are in that, it seems like it's an ever-rebuilding stage, but that rebuilding stage, um, they want to get it right, the combination right for the October upcoming October T20 World Cup. And this was like, they hung with the big dogs here, I think. Um, and I believe that now they, we've always seen all these young players that they have, they have potential, we always say they have potential, but they actually acted it out. Not with the result notwithstanding, I think it's key for their confidence. And Quentin Cock is a young captain. Yeah, no, I, I do think that's definitely the case. But I'm saying, look, you throw Duplessis back in there, you throw Rabada back in there, and you have DeCock, Bavuma, Rossi Vanderdussen, David Miller, Lunginghidi, Feliquayo. I mean, that's seven or eight guys right there. And you plug in three or four more, and you have a legitimate team. And in a T20 World Cup where players can get hot and you have a shorter format of the game, limited things can happen in, in such a shorter format. You know, guys can score 50 really quickly in a one-off and, and that could be the difference between winning or losing a game and, and eventually, you know, winning or losing the tournament. I think South Africa has a fighting chance, a much more of a chance than we would give them coming off not just the 2019 World Cup, but then the disaster that followed with the administration and sort of the coaching and, and personnel changes that they had to undergo. So I definitely think there's more to South Africa now. This rebuilding phase has definitely sort of been kickstarted and accelerated. And, you know, Decock taking over and Duplessis stepping down in the, in the other formats definitely helps them. I think that's going to be big for Duplessis as well. He doesn't have to manage. And Decock, from a leadership standpoint, I think, it's going to be really good for them. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think this might be an un, this might be an unmentionable now because we've talked about it so many times, and because South Africa will just wallow in it. But I genuinely think AB De Villiers will play in the upcoming. World oh Cup. my God! Roger has says that had said that. Oh, that exactly. <laughs> I mentioned uh, it. I mentioned it last time that I, I was just tired of it, and I saw that story again. Who keeps asking these questions? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering why is this question still being asked? Because the Wait. response has been the same every single time. And now, what what do you need from AB De Villiers? You just watch uh, your team go toe to toe with arguably the best white ball side in the world. What do you need from AB De Villiers? What do you want from AB De Villiers? Listen, go send think- go send the team that you just put out there to Australia. They can win it. South Africa doesn't have any explanation. They don't have any expectations for the World Cup. I don't think they think they'll win it all. This team that played against England can absolutely win the World Cup. It's a one-off and it's at home. But still, still, I think this team, A.B. de Villiers is a non-factor for me at this point. What you just saw in this England series, you should have confidence that this team could win a World Cup. I love what I saw from Decock. He he put up that he put up that fifty in like what thirteen balls. How about Bavuma? Bavuma looked Bavuma. amazing, and Rossi oh, continues to click. 
Ingidi was taking wickets. Felquire was a handy all-rounder. Yeah, throw Rabada back in there. Well, he was being rested for this series. But so you throw Rabada back in there. All of a sudden, you got two great pacers. Felk Wiles, not too shabby in his own right. Shamsi was a, a solid spinner for them. I think he'll get some run. So they, they were a legitimate team. To bring the AB conversation back into this, I think, was just unnecessary. And just, you know, who, who keeps asking these questions? At that point, there's just no need for it. There's just no need for it. I appreciate, look, I appreciate Mark Boucher answering the question, and I would much rather that he answer it than not answer it as someone in the media, but these questions need to stop. I don't want to hear about A.B. De Villiers possibly playing, possibly not playing. If he plays, he plays. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Leave it at that. You can start the change from within, Jimmy. That's fair. (laughs) That's fair. I, I, I do agree with that. After all this South Africa talk, England did win the T20 series, and in the ODI series, it was 1-1, so we do have to mention England. Joe Denley looked really good in the ODI format. Uh, he's a nice backup option for them if they're not feeling some of their middle-order players. Maybe they don't want Bearstow at the top. Denley's a good fit. I think he showed what he can do in this series. From a limited or from a T20 standpoint, I really like what England's doing with Roy, Bearstow, and Butler at the top. Joss Butler's position in the T20 lineup has been a big debate uh, among fans and media members and even within England's administration. And England have said that Butler's going to open going forward in the T20 format because he is just devastating at the top and you want him to be able to take advantage of the power play. And Jason Roy, we know what Jason Roy can do. Johnny Bairstow is is not a bad batsman, but I think they want Butler and Roy at the top. And, And Morgan serves a good finisher role. I don't, I don't know if we really think of Owen Morgan as that type of player, but he serves as a good finisher for England. And, you know, you throw Stokes back in there, you throw Wokes in there, Chris Jordan, and all of a sudden England has a bevy of guys who can bowl and bat. And I think that's, you know, England's ultimate goal will be to field 11 batsmen and masquerade four bowlers in there somehow. I don't know how they're going to do it, but they're very close. So that's going to be really scary if they do figure that out. But I like where England's at ahead of the T20 World Cup. They haven't missed a beat since the summer. The uh, last match was insane. That was the first instance of 350s in a chase. And Owen Morgan was just popping off. It was it was wild. It was wild to watch. I'm, re- I'm ready for Owen Morgan and Andre Russell at the crease together later on this year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's going to be something for sure. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll preview the Women's T20 World Cup, which is taking place in Australia. You're listening to the Follow On Podcast here on followoncricket.com. Welcome back to the Follow On Podcast here on followoncricket.com. We're previewing the Women's T20 World Cup, which will take place in Australia here shortly. Australia have been the most successful team. They are the reigning champions and they are the heavy favorites for the home T20 World Cup. Five-time champions, Australia, Meg Lanning, Alyssa Healy, Elise Perry. Those are your three big names for Australia. India will be fielding a slightly younger team, but they still have Smriti Mandana, Harman Preet Kaur, and Dipti Sharma will be in there. No Mitali Raj, that was kind of the surprise exclusion. Indian Australia is actually the first match 
of this T20 World Cup. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. There are They are in the same group. The one thing that has kind of caught everybody's attention from this World Cup will be that front foot no balls will be exclusively called by the third umpire. So the on-field umpires will not be responsible for determining front foot no balls. They'll still call height no balls. They'll still call fielding restriction no balls. But the front foot no ball is at the sole discretion of the third umpire. Basically, they want to uh, speed up the flow of the game, minimal delays. It won't be in real time. So the batsman won't be able to take advantage theoretically, of the actual no ball that is being bowled, the front foot no ball that's being bowled. But since it's the T20 World Cup, there'll be a free hit afterwards. So they'll be able to take advantage of that still. Guys, your thoughts on this technology being implemented at a major tournament as a sort of a trial run? Uh, I think it's fine because I think there are a ton of missed front foot no ball calls by umpires. And if you're going to call them so sporadically, I think it's kind of dumb to just look for it only after a wicket. Like, great. Uh, I think you should look for it in general for every ball. That being said, if it ends up being disruptive to the game because they understand, they realize that bowlers are doing it like twice and over, then maybe they'll go back on it. But for now, I think it's fine. Or maybe those bowlers will just start the run up half a step back and they can learn how to bowl properly. Yeah, I think I, I don't think that should be one of the consequences of it. I mean, I like it. I think it's a good thing that they're just taking it all out of the on-field umpire's hands, so there doesn't need to be a quarrel between the on-field and the video umpire or, like, any type of disagreement or, like, oh, man, look, that on-field umpire missed, like, X number of no balls. Like, let's just take it out of their hands, and, you know, it's just a quick replay. And honestly, the the third umpire should be able to have a decision by the time, like, the ball is played out. Like, you know, if they hit the ball in play, it should take five seconds for a third umpire to review every single ball. So... Um, that shouldn't be as much of a controversy. What will be more of a controversy is those balls that are super, super close, um, and you're like, is there some shoe on the line, or is the shoe above the line? And I'm kind of worried about how it'll turn out, because like you see VAR in soccer, those super, super marginal decisions, um, especially if they're on wicket-taking balls in cricket, those can stir up some controversy too. Yeah, absolutely, but those decisions go to the third umpire anyway. So I think it's just speeding up the process. So I do like where this is headed. I do think it'll clear up some things. And no balls, front foot no balls are not called that often anyway. So you're not really looking at too much to begin with. But I do like that they're giving it completely to the third umpire and letting third umpire make this decision. We can't get away from this without having some predictions. So guys, I'll give you the two groups and you'll tell me which two teams will come out of each group, and then who you see lifting this Women's T20 World Cup trophy. So Group A, Australia, India, New Zealand, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Australia, India, the favorites in that group. New Zealand, though, uh, Sophie Devine, Susie Bates, they'll definitely have something to say about that. In the second group, England, South Africa, West Indies, Pakistan, and Thailand making a T20 World Cup. It's nice to see a new country come in and make a mark on the tournament. I've got Australia and India from Group A, and I've got England and the West Indies from Group B, and I think Australia makes it a sixth T20 World Cup title at home. I'm going to take also Australia and India from Group A, and I'm going to take England and Pakistan from Group B. It was interesting, though, that Australia, India, and England just played a tri-series right before this tournament started, and 
each team took uh, took a match off of each other, and Australia barely squeaked by in the final. So this will probably be a little closer uh, closer matches for Australia than the history suggests, as you were mentioning earlier. But I'll still take Australia uh, to win the tournament. I would also take Australia, India, and then England. And I think surprise Pakistan. And I think India might win it all. I say that because I think they, you know, like they said, like you said, they don't have Mithali Raj, but they have a, some amount of depth in there. And Australia does have the star power, but I think India definitely has, can go toe for toe with them. All right. So I've got Australia. Anish has Australia. Ashay has India at the Women's T20 World Cup. Katy Perry will be performing for that tournament. Uh, that'll do it oh, for us here at the Follow On Podcast. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and as always, all of our content at followoncricket.com.